0: You've had a lockdown birthday, Andy, have you not? Yeah, I did have a lockdown
4: birthday. I don't really think, I, let's not dwell on it. I, I, it Good. was a bit, of a, I, it was a bit it. of a weird day and I sort of, you know, I read about yeah. Antonia White for a bit and, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, was, I, felt, I felt every one of my 52 years. <laughs> let's ask our lovely guests where they're, um, where you where they're joining them? us from. Uh, Erica, where are you calling from?
2: I am calling from either Bethnal Green or Shoreditch, depending on how cool you're feeling. You know, you could say <laughs> one or the other, depending on who I'm talking to. I'll sometimes say, "Oh, we yeah. live in yeah. Bethnal Green," or "Oh, we live in Shoreditch." So somewhere on the border there. He- uh,
4: I think you need. To, yeah. I think you need to tell us. Which one you think is more
0: appropriate for us?
2: I'm down with Bethnal Green. You know, I think yeah. you're. Yeah, I think
0: Bethnal Green is fine. <laughs> We're the isn't? hard people. Shoreditch is a state of mind now, rather than an area. I mean, we we get calls Shoreditch and we the office that is, and it's clearly not.
2: So that's where I'm calling in well... from, from my little ship's cabin kind of office here. In... And
0: <laughs> thanks, Erica
4: and Laura. Where are you? Phone, uh, phoning, They're zooming. Where are you zooming from? I'm
1: in rural Buckinghamshire um, on a visit to my mother, who's keeping two dogs at bay. The other, the other side of that door.
0: Excellent. Uh. <laughs> and is it is is that near where uh, Violet, your grandmother, had her famous pub?
1: It is. It's about three miles away. Love it. Love and um, I've got her, all her stuff around me, all her glasses and all that. I've got That's her ice on. bucket at my feet, just waiting for a key moment. Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's very near, <laughs> very near.
4: What dogs are on the other side of that stout yeah. wooden door that I can see?
1: <laughs> There's a Saluki greyhound, a rescue oh. dog, who I think I just heard it- coming down the stairs at about, 100 miles an hour
0: who i see on uh, instagram yeah quite he's, he's
1: got a certain following on instagram he's got a lady vicar who thinks he's absolutely <laughs> beautiful which i think is very nice and there's also a, a venerable black labrador they they kind of tolerate each other but it's their it's their lunch time or their their high okay. tea time once they've had that they'll be you know
0: dead. To does point. your terrier have high tea Andy? it looks like it ought to some kind
4: of High t- what do you do you mean it's do we put him at a little table um, and
0: <laughs> <laughs> he he does have a young master look about him? <laughs>
4: of course, we do. Well, since we're revealing these personal details of his, which he hasn't signed off, <laughs> it, it, he has his breakfast at seven a.m. and his tea at four p.m. Two meals. Mm.
1: See, I'm a one meal a day person with these dogs, and then anything they what? can scavenge.
4: Julia, Julia Rayside was saying to me, "How's Arrow?" I was saying it's really been brilliant living with Arrow for the last few months because, you know, he doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> he's the, he's the same ed- he's the same idiot he was three months ago. <laughs> he's an unchanging moron. So
0: <laughs> the glorious stupidity of dogs is just—it's yeah. endless, isn't it? It's just very very lovely. Shall we um? Should we crack on? Let's do it. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today you find us in an Edwardian convent school on the southern outskirts of London, walking in silence through the whitewashed corridors towards chapel with its reassuring smell of beeswax and incense, the faint murmur of girls' voices praying in Latin. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. I'm
4: Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously, and joining us today are two returning guests. Hello, Hello. Can anyone yeah. hear that dog? I <laughs>
0: can. Did everyone hear that dog? I did. The point is they've heard us now. The okay. dogs know we're talking about Could them. Could you they hear have mine? they definitely... <laughs> <ma-mum>. <laughs> <laughs> it's,
1: it's mayhem. <sighs> it's mayhem. Joining us
4: today are... Dog listed. Uh, ...are a load of dogs.
3: <laughs> Bark listed.
4: Bark <laughs> listed. Oh, thank Very you. Very good, Nikki. Joining us today are two returning guests. Hello, Erica. Hello, Laura. Hello.
1: Hello.
4: First up, Laura Thompson. Laura was here for like the third or fourth ever backlisted. Still listened to regularly, which was an episode on Nancy Mitford and The Blessing. Laura is the Somerset Maugham winning author of nine books, including the New York Times bestseller The Six about the Mitford sisters and two books about real life murders, The Lord Lucan Story and The Thompson Bywaters Case. Most recently, she published The Last Landlady with Unbound a memoir of her publican grandmother and an updated reissue of her Agatha Christie biography, which was Edgar nominated last year. What's an Edgar?
1: It's a, it's, oh, I was pretty chuffed. The Edgar Allan Poe Award. Uh, they're, they're American awards for detective fiction and they have a non fiction category.
0: Fantastic. It's like a sort of the crime writer kind of, you know, CWA kind of thing here, but even more prestigious.
1: And a, and a better ceremony.
0: Oh, really? <laughs> Laura writes occasionally for the
4: TLS and for Harper's Bazaar and is a fervent lover of animals, the Rolling Stones, and the other Elizabeth Taylor. And therefore, you're extremely welcome back to that list,ed Laura. <laughs> I'm
1: so glad to hear She's not the other Elizabeth Taylor anymore, is she? She is Elizabeth. It's, it's the other one. Cleopatra is the other Elizabeth Taylor.
0: I think. We uh, like to think so on this podcast. Our second guest
4: is, drumroll, <laughs> Erica Wagner, now making her fourth appearance on Backlisted. Bless you, Erica. Thank you. She was previously here uh, to talk about Alan Garner's novel Red Shift, Randall Jarrell's The Animal Family, and may I say that one of my favourite books that I've discovered through doing Backlisted was thanks to that Randall Jarrell episode. I love The Animal Family, I, mean, I keep it near me at all times. Randall Jarrell's Book of Stories, oh, which yes. is a collection of, of stories that he edited, which manages to make you look at the short story in a completely different way.
2: It was thanks, it was thanks to that podcast, this beloved author, who I have always adored, that I actually discovered how to pronounce his name.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to you telling us how to pronounce Antonia White. Antonia White, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> And you were also here uh, to talk, um, you came on for um, Dennis Johnson to talk about Jesus' son. So that's a range. range there, Erica yep, Wagner. Yeah, quite, quite, quite a range. Yeah. Um, Erica is an author and critic, reader and listener. Her latest book is Chief Engineer, Washington Roebling, The Man Who Built the Brooklyn Bridge, published by Bloomsbury. She's the author of a novel, Seizure, published by Faber, and with storyteller Abby Patricks and musician Linda... Edher. Thank you. The creator of Pas de Deux, a concert of stories. She was literary editor of The Times for 17 years and is now a contributing writer for The New Statesman and literary editor for Harper's Bazaar. She's a lecturer in creative writing at Goldsmiths and went not doing any of the b- above. Knits, bang, cooks, bang, <laughs> baked sourdough bread, bang, and most crucially, and the clue was there all along watches Call the Midwife. <laughs> 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 you do though, do you? I'm, I'm, I'm not even joking. You love call the midwife. I love call the midwife.
2: I do. Yes, absolutely. It's crucial to my, to my very being.
4: Well, great news, everyone. If you like
0: nuns as much as we do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the book that uh, Erica and Laura are here to talk about is Frost in May by Antonia White, first published in 1933 by a small publisher called Harmsworth but famously reissued in uh, 1978 by Virago as the very first Virago modern classic. But um, before we enter the chapel, as it were, I think I'm going to ask you, Andy, what have you been reading this week?
4: Okay, so this is going to be quite tricky uh, to do this in five minutes. And also it's a visual book. So the book is called John Piper's Brighton Aquatint. It's, and this we're going to loop back to this. It's not called Brighton Aquatints by John Piper. The book is called John Piper's Brighton Aquatints, for which there is a good reason. An Aquatint is a print popular initially in the Regency era, but then re- repopularized by Piper in the 30s, which resembles a watercolor, which is made by etching a copper plate with um, nitric acid and then using resin and varnish to produce areas of tonal shading. John Piper, he was a famous British artist of the 20th century, painter, printmaker, designer of stained glass windows, opera theatre sets. We would think of him in the same um, bracket as probably Revillius, and his work often focused on British landscape, especially churches and monuments. And he designed book jackets, including the famous Jacket of the Spire by William Golding from its first edition. And So that's a long-winded way of saying this book. John Piper's Brighton Aquitance, published by uh, Mainstone Press in Norfolk, who are a fantastic publisher who do, on average, one book a year. And the reason why they do one book a year is because they pour so much time, energy, love, and the production values are so high. They... They're, they're probably their best known book is similar to this they republished eric revilius's high street but they did it as a book called the story of high street i don't own a copy i'd love to it's very expensive so i borrowed it out of the library fortunately john piper's brighton aquatint is not as expensive. And it's also a beautiful, beautiful thing. What it is, in essence, is a series of pictures that John Piper did in the late 1930s of Brighton. It was published in an edition of several hundred, that's all, a few of which were coloured by hand. And it came out in November 1939, and therefore was difficult to manufacture and hardly sold at all because of the Second World War. And indeed, The limited stock, some of it was destroyed, I think I'm right in saying. So it was an extremely valuable book, and an original is still extremely valuable. But what Mainstone have done with this is they've produced a replica of Brighton Aquatints, but they've also give you the history of the book itself within the book. So it's almost like it isn't a facsimile, it's actually a book about a book which is hence the title John Piper's Brighton Aquitance, which is a thing obviously we love on Backlisted. Biography of a book, but it's also a book about Brighton. It's a book about how what Brighton was like in the Regency era, what it was like in the 1930s, and what it's like now. They've added, in addition to an introduction by Alan Powers, they've added text to each picture so... On one page, you have a picture of, say, the Brighton Pavilion, which I'm going to, and I'm going to talk about this in a sec. And John Piper's original text, and then you turn the page, and you have the picture before it was hand painted, with a new text by Alan Powers, recontextualizing the picture. So it's it's like layer upon layer upon layer. And right. I didn't know the book was going to be that. I, I used to live in Brighton. I love Brighton. I love John Piper. The book was a present. I thought, oh, what a nice thing. And then a few weeks later, I sat down to actually read it. And it, I just thought, wow, this is a this is a real book. It's there to be read. It's not a thing that you would just have on the shelf and get off and occasionally and think that's a nice picture of the grand. It's a thing to be read and reread and learned from. So can I just read you... John Piper's description. I just love his stuff. Okay. This is what John Piper wrote, uh, the Royal Pavilion, and then I'll read you what Alan Powers says, how he's updated it. The Royal Pavilion. This is the John Piper one. Built for George IV when Prince Regent. First he enlarged a villa on the site till it became a prepossessing Regency house. Then he commissioned Porden to build stables, now the Dome, and a riding house in Indian style and soon found that these overpowered his charming seaside villa. Then he saw Cockrell's wonderful new house at Sessing Coast in Gloucestershire and envied its Hindu fancifulness. Repton laid out the gardens here. And then he talks about it a bit more. He talks about John Nash. It now belongs to the Brighton Corporation and is carefully preserved. You can go inside it for six shillings. During the war, it was used as a hospital for wounded Indian troops who must have found it only vaguely like home. (laughs) So that's what John Piper said. And then if you turn the page, you get the original drawing before it was coloured, and facing it, you get Alan Powers um, written in the last couple of years, the Royal Pavilion, the passage from laughter to affection Combining the appreciation of vulgarity and sensitivity in the same place encapsulates the John Betjeman, John Piper project for architecture. The dark sky, very bad luck with your weather, Mr Piper, as King George VI commented a few years later, is vital to offsetting the stately pleasure dome floating midway on the wave as Coleridge imagined in his opiate haze. Isn't that I mean, so that like all Mainstone Press productions, um, they've gone above and beyond to create a beautiful and thought provoking item in its own right. It also led me on to reading another book called Romantic Moderns by Alexandra Harris, which I'm going to talk about on the
0: next episode of Backlisted. John, what have you been reading this week? Well, I've, I've also been reading a book that's mostly pictures, which is a book that I feel I ought to have known about years ago but didn't. And there's a kind of reason why I didn't know about it years ago is that it's only recently been reissued. It's it's called Once a Year, uh, and it's a collection of photographs by Homer Sykes. I see it. It was published originally in 1977, and it's a collection of photographs taken... He spent seven years travelling around England taking photographs of... English traditional customs and it's just a completely glorious wonderful collection of photographs first and foremost Homer Seitz is still alive he's on Twitter he's (laughs) done he's in his 70s now he was a relatively young man when he did this book Uh, and for a long long time it fell out of print and in uh, I think it was 2016 the excellent uh, Welsh publisher Dewey Lewis reissued it and it's a beautiful collection of photographs obviously you know, photographs on the radio always a challenge, but as well as having photographs of the customs, there is a, ga- a sort of gazetteer at the back where he, Homo explains what they are. So it has a kind of anthropological sort of Cecil Sharpy uh, mm-hmm. quality to it. But what I really love it's it's the it's the I guess it's the fact that the customs themselves are so insane. You know, the Abbott Bromley horn dance, which has been perhaps going on for a thousand years you know, the Hatherley Fire Festival, all of these mad fat fire festivals, the Ottery St Mary Tar Barrel, and they're terrifying. And look, the, Because it's the 1970s, there is no concept of health and safety. <laughs> they are superb f- in the social, you know, documentation style that sort of, I guess, you know, we associate with Martin Parr. They're beautiful, beautiful photographs in their own right. They're an extraordinary record of the 1970s. I mean, this wonderful bottle kicking and hair pie scrambling from 1973 from Hallerton and Leicestershire. <laughs> I mean, that is essentially a football, a oh, football a crowd photo, carrying man. wooden barrels that they're about to run through. the The photos. Did are you stunning. say this is it, is this in um, print at the moment? It is totally in print. It's thirty pounds, which I think is a snip for for the glory of what's inside it. I happened to watch the other night, and the excellent film Kill List by Ben Wheatley, which yeah. uh, is one of the best films I've seen for a yeah, very yeah. long time. And I suppose those two things have somewhat merged in my head is that this country, these countries are so much odder and weirder and, and stranger than we sometimes give them credit for. And there's something about the kind of 1970s downbeat kind of clothes, the sort of knock-back feel of the photographs and the exoticism of the of the customs itself that sort of makes it work. There's a lovely introduction from Homer Sites, and he says, I have in recent years retraced my steps visiting many annual British customs, including this volume and others that are not many that I have photographed recently for the first time are almost unknown local village events, but they still flourish. Tracking them down has been made possible with the internet, allowing easy research and contact in the seventies was much more difficult. So contrary to what I had believed, the vast majority of those customs that I photographed are still thriving, Good Lord. which is kind of an amazing, mm-hmm. an amazing thing. Anyway, it's, Once a year, some traditional British customs, Homer Sykes, excellent Dewey Lewis publishing. Now, here are our sponsors telling you what to do.
1: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.
2: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer.
4: This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom terms apply
3: my guest today antonio white was born in 1899 was received into the catholic church as a girl of seven went to a convert school and later to st paul's started her living at the age of 16 the first of her three marriages was at 21 two of these were annulled and the third ended in divorce she spent a year in Bethlehem asylum in 1922 she was a copywriter, she was a fashion editor, she worked for the BBC. She published her first book about her convent school experiences in 1933. This year, the Rago Press has chosen to reprint it, Frost in May.
4: Well, that was... Brilliant. Um, we're going to be hearing a few excerpts from that programme today. That was, of course, Mavis Nicholson. And if you'd switched on Thames TV at about 1.30 in the afternoon... <laughs> In 1978, you will be confronted with this extraordinary 20-minute interview, which is on YouTube. We'll put a link up to it on the website. But we're here to talk about that very book, Frost in May by Antonia White. And because it's so autobiographical and because there is so much to say about her extraordinary life, um, Mavis agreed to um, do the biography
0: right at the top of the show. (laughs) So... We should start with this, the question that we always ask um, uh, our guests on Backlisted, which is, Erica, where were you, uh, when were you, when you first read Frost in May by antony White?
2: The honest answer is I can't be precisely sure, but I know I was a teenager. I know I was not much older than Nanda is at the end of this book, and actually the more I think about it, um, as was said in that little introductory clip, Antonia White went to St. Paul's. Her father was the classics master at the boys' school of St. Paul's. And although I grew up in New York, I did a year of school, the first year of A levels, when I was 16 at St. Paul's Girls' School Amazing. in West okay. London. And I know I read it around this time. It was something actually of a, of a traumatic year for me, so things are a little hazy, but it's quite possible that actually I read it then, certainly not long after, so when I was 16 or 17. And so there were similarities in the book to my own experience of finding myself in a culture kind of alien and familiar. I knew nothing of Catholic England. But as a teenager, I had grown up on the Upper West Side of New York. And so finding myself in an English girls' school was very different. I went to a, an all-girls school in New York City, but they were very different kinds of schools. And so I felt, although in some ways the book was strange to me, I also felt quite connected with it, and I was really starting to want to discover English writers, and Antonia White was formative for me in that discovery.
0: I mean, we should say that the, the book is it starts with uh, Fernanda Nanda um, being delivered by her father to a convent school um, in, in in southwest London, and and the book really is charts her her. Progress, both as initiation into the Catholic faith, but also initiation, I guess, into a into a world of of relationships. It's a school that's run on very strict lines by nuns. Um, so, Laura, you you've read a lot of Antonia White. Did you read? Was this the book you read first? When were you were you you first read her?
1: Not dissimilar to Erica, really. Probably same sort of age. I would have been in this house, because this is the house where I grew up, and I read Frosty May, but I read all four of the books in one big old (laughs) book. I found them utterly compelling, utterly compulsive. Frosty May is the acknowledged masterpiece, but um, I was reading in this brilliant biography, the Jane Dunn biography, which I think we've all read, uh, the, re- the reception given to the other three books, which came much later on, and quite a grudging reception yeah. that kind of yeah. verges yeah. on, um, oh, lady writer, you know, a little bit of that, I feel. Um, I was amazed by the reception for those books uh, because I think they're all brilliant, particularly the last one. We should just, I should just
4: say what they are, shouldn't I? The, so so oh, Frost yeah. in May is published in 1933, and then, as you say, there's a gap. And The Lost yeah. Traveller comes out in 1950, The Sugar House in 1952, and Beyond the Glass in 1954. So as yes. you say, they're yeah. like a – there's a – the first one seems to – well, we'll hear from Antonia in a minute, but seems to fall out quite easily and then no other book ever falls out easily for her.
1: No, she had terrible writer's block. But it's it's interesting because people know her for that one – and it, 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 it reminds me slightly of Jean Rees, whom I also adore. And I think there are certain parallels. People know Wide Sargasso Sea, but there are these four others that are utterly... Yeah. I mean, people know them, of course they do. But they're, they're utterly brilliant, possibly even better in my view. But, but they're known for that one. But I, I, I know we're talking about Foster May, but I really shout out to the other three as well. But it, it's a continuous story changes the name from nanda to clara but it's a continuous story
4: john you were talking about what the setting of the book is it's a convent school book convent school novel i just there's this i saw this description by penelope fitzgerald and she said frost in may is the most brilliant and at the same time the murkiest of all convent school novels (laughs) And I thought that was really, that's, that's Penelope Fitzgerald firing on all cylinders, isn't it? The, the most brilliant and at the same time the murkiest. So, and where is the murk in it? I mean, for me, it's the, the sense of fear and, and not knowing where you are. You know, Erica, you were saying, yeah, you know, you're, you're in a convent school, okay, but, but where are you? In, in, you know, what actual state are you in? <laughs>
2: And I I think one of the things I said when we were corresponding about this book, and perhaps one of the reasons where I have to come clean and say that I have not read the other three, I will now, but there is a kind of hermetic, sealed-in quality to this book. It is sufficient unto itself. So you, as the reader, feel completely captivated, surrounded by these convent walls. And almost as Nanda is, what she conveys so brilliantly is the way in which Nanda is (coughs) indoctrinated, not just into the religion, and she's kind of, because she is a convert, she's constantly being told that she does not belong. So she has that convert's desire to throw herself into this world, which sucks you in as a reader. And so by the time, what's fascinating in reading it again, by the time she begins to transgress, what would have seemed at the beginning of your reading the novel to seem like nothing much she's not disobeying in any major way by the time you come to that part of the book you are aghast at her behavior (laughs) that she dares to do these terrible things which in the grand scheme of things are not terrible at all once you're outside the world of the book that's so true that is so true
1: because she's a convert but she's also possibly even worse to these nuns, she's middle class, because they're all the, the girls at this school, which is called Lippington. And that word is so right, I think it's really um, <laughs> the, is it the convent of the Sacred Heart at Rohan. But Lippington, there's a kind of ice, quality of ice in it. And there's high, it, 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 there's a kind of subliminal hysteria in the atmosphere. But the nuns are the worst snobs on, on God's earth. Um, And because most of the girls are aristocratic and they come from family, and that's all done so brilliantly.
0: The scene in the father's study where he suggests to her that she might go to another school and she bursts into tears and says, I don't want to leave. And then he does something that's even worse. He confesses to her that money is tight. And then he might have to go back (laughs) to the nuns and (laughs) say... There is not enough money for us to pay the full fees, and she has watched the systematic ritual humiliation of another girl, who uh, whose family couldn't pay their fees by the nuns. The kind of just the subtle way in which you know she wasn't allowed the quality of her uniform, the the paper and pencils she was allowed to use at the school, the fact that she wasn't even. It's so subtle.
1: But what's incredible about this book, I think, is that it is written. It is like it's written like a school story. She wrote it like a school story when she was she was married and she had to write her, her husband said to her, write a chapter a week, read it out to me at the end of the week. And that seems to have sort of suited her because she she was schooled in this the discipline of the Catholic Church and she in some way she seemed she's it, 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 she needs to rebel against it, but also she needs it. It's that ambivalence yeah. which goes through the whole book, I don't even know how judgmental she is about Catholicism in the book. Um but it's like it is a, a school story you could read it, you know, it's it's written in the same way almost like a, a a really well-written for for young, you know, 12-year-olds or something, and yet it's so adult. There's this invisible adult overview that I I I can't think of another book like it really. Um that it's written so clean and clear and simple and yet my God what's going on in it, you know, that and that and that is and that is Antonia White's great gift, I think. And it seems very easy. She seems like the last person in the world who'd have writer's block. But
4: well you we were yeah. so you were talking about the atmosphere, you know, the the um the slightly the atmosphere of suppressed hysteria. When um we've got a clip here, clip number four, Nikki. We've got a clip here, uh The four novels were adapted very successfully for the BBC in 1982. And here's a clip of the nine-year-old Nanda. There's a question coming up. Which actress is playing the part of nine-year-old Nanda here?
3: Sink, sink deep into thyself and rally the good in the depths of thy soul. Importance of retreat... Opportunity to know ourselves, discover our faults without flinching, set right our account with God. We are solitary beings. Naked came we into the world. No human friendship comparable to the friendship of God. Worldly pleasures interfere with spiritual life. If a friendship hinders your practice of religion, give it up.
0: That's marvellous.
4: Anyone.
1: Was she once married to Liam Gallagher?
4: She was. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Hole in Unlikely
1: wrong. as it seems,
4: Patsy Kenseth, everybody. Not necessarily the casting I would have thought of for,
0: for this particular role, but there we are. Also, that, that that's so such a great piece to choose because it's so touching. The notes that she writes for Claire, for Claire. Rockingham, who is a uh, like her, a, 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 you know, not born a Catholic. And who she is desperate in this kind of fevered atmosphere to try and convert, and the the thirteen year old or twelve year old um, Nanda writes these really lyrical, beautiful notes for her to help her sort of to help her see the kind of mysteries of, of faith. It's um it's it's again it's such a such a sh- a short book that has so much in it because the the sense of her development as a writer of which that's one of the examples I think is 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 one of the is one of the things that's so so beautifully done before she starts on the fateful novel
2: (laughs) but also that sequence her writing that diary is wonderful too because she is on retreat yes and Claire is not allowed to go on retreat because she's not a Catholic Mm. and you see suddenly this is a moment where Nanda for once feels as if she has some power. She's able to give instruction where usually she's the one because she is the convert. She's always feeling inferior. But here you see and you enter her written voice, her opportunity to to give some both instruction and comfort. And I think that's also what makes that sequence really really moving
4: so look, while we're talking about that let's hear another clip from the bbc adaptation we're going to hear eleanor david as mother francis talking to nanda and um by the end thoroughly chilling the blood of anybody of anybody <laughs> listening how many very good have
3: you had nanda seven one more to go and you'll have a pink ribbon like marjorie appleyard I suppose you think you're a model little girl. There's goodness and goodness, you know. Think of St. Ignatius, St. Mary Magdalene. They were sinners before they were saints. God doesn't care about namby-pamby goodness. He wants real hard goodness that comes from conquering real hard faults. Not that you haven't got faults. The trouble with your faults is they don't show, except to the practiced eye. You're quite independent. And if a child your age could be said to have spiritual pride, then spiritual pride may well be your ruling vice. Well, I can't take your exemption for spiritual pride. Only don't mistake a pink ribbon for a halo.
4: Ooh, oh, Nikki, I can see Nikki's face. It's just, oh, oh that's oh, that's oh. made my skin creep. Oh.
1: But Catholicism uh, it, is still presented as tremendously alluring in the book. I mean, these girl, it's incredibly good on those slightly hysterical friendships that you have as a young girl, you know. Um, it, I mean, I went to ballet school, so that nun doesn't sound that
2: weird to me. To be <laughs> perfect, <honestly>. <laughs> 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 that's
1: exactly how they spoke to us all the time. But um, and and you and, and the, the friendships in this book, particularly there's the most brilliant character, Leonie. Oh. And she's amazing, right? The, um, just the sort of girl that you you form a kind of passion for when you're young and it, 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 excitable. But her impregnable Catholicism is, you know, and it's something that I, I remember. My best friend at school was Catholic, and I thought that was I thought it was so glamorous. I thought it was so romantic. There is a lot of that in the book. It's presented as um, bad in many ways and cruel and sadistic, but it's also presented as something because it's impregnable, because she can't ever quite get at it. And this thing, Lainey says to her, you'll never understand. You know, one of the girls, one of the lovely girls who have been at school, and she comes back, she's going to become a nun, and Nanda is terrorised. She says, oh, my God, have a vocation. That's the worst thing in the world. And Lainey says to her, you'll never understand. You will never understand what... You know they're so sure, they're so certain. There is something very alluring about it that, to me, comes across even in this book. But that maybe that's me. I don't know. Sounds mm-hmm. like it might
0: just be me. Remedi- no, no, no. I was no, 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 no. I, I think that's what makes this book so much more interesting. Hmm. Uh, to be honest, there is a kind of, you know, it's a convent school book. Um, it's a book about that, that kind of intense. You know, we sort of we sort of know we feel we know that story, but for anybody who thinks they know that story who hasn't read that book, you really no one has done it like this. No one has made it so intense and so compelling and seductive. I think it is very seductive. You're right.
2: It's
1: eroticized,
2: I think, very because also the seductiveness. I completely agree with you. Adolescence is about uncertainty. When you are an adolescent. You are uncertain who you are, where you're going. And so to be an adolescent like Nanda, who also has the fundamental uncertainty of a convert, but ranged in front of her are these other girls and the nuns who whatever else they are going through, as you say, have this fundamental Rock like, impregnable certainty. And surely that's what's, even if you are, as I was and am, completely outside the culture of this book, that's why it transcends its culture and is universal. Because to me, that's what that is demonstrating. Yes, yes.
0: Anyone who's ever felt that they're an outsider and who's ever felt like they're trying to impress people to curry favor to to you know and the way that 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 those very human impulses positive impulses about wanting to wanting to perform wanting to to give delight and share beauty the way that those are turned into perversities is i don't think i've read anything i mean you know possibly only only uh, portrait of the artist artist's young man comes close it, to, to, to capturing just the crushing the crushing the devastating uh kind of as they say that it's about breaking the spirit pulling the spirit apart and remaking it, it to, to to better please god it's it's a terrifying book
1: and you read the whole thing waiting for that
2: don't you there's such a yeah. sense of foreboding The mm, whole that's time very true just
0: yeah for- erica have you got something
4: to read for us, a section to read for us.
2: I do, and it and it ties in with um, quite a lot of what we've been saying, I think. So, to set the scene a little, John was describing how there's another girl, who's called Monica Owen, who is penalised because her father is, I think, a doctor, a doctor in a provincial town. <laughs> heaven forfend. <laughs> and so she is uh, as Antonia White writes, she's shabbily treated by the nuns and because her father could not afford the full fees, and so she has all these secondhand lesson books and uniforms. But she's a lovely girl, and she's very serious about her Catholicism. She has one vice, which, again, does not seem to us like a vice, which is that she's obsessed with dogs, we come back to dogs. We, always, I always. knew we'd get them in. And in the, in the corners of her lesson books, she draws caricatures, one feels kind of inadvertently, of the, of the nuns as dogs.
4: What could go wrong?
2: What could possibly <laughs> go wrong? And she's obstinate in this. She won't stop doing this and eventually it's discovered. And so that's what happens next is what I'm going to read. Is it true that Monica Owen is going to be expelled? She asked outright. I don't think that concerns any of us, said Rose uncomfortably. It certainly does if it's true, insisted Nanda angrily. Well, you'd better ask Mother Radcliffe, said Rose with a nervous giggle, No doubt she's longing to take you into her confidence. But Rose's mild sarcasm was lost on Nanda. I'll go this very minute, she said, white with rage. Two minutes later, she was knocking at Mother Radcliffe's door. Summoned in, she found Mother Radcliffe busy writing letters. What is it, Nanda? said the nun, rather irritably. I don't think I sent for you, did I? No, Mother, said Nanda, very quietly though her knees were shaking with excitement. Then what is it? Be quick, please. I am very busy, as you see. Anger and a hot sense of injustice had given Nanda a most unusual courage. It's about Monica Owen. Is she really going to be expelled? She blurted out. Mother Radcliffe dropped her pen with surprise. Really, Nanda, what a very odd question. I don't think that concerns you, does it? Is Monica another of those wonderful friends of yours? (laughs) It was on the tip of Nanda's tongue to remind Mother Radcliffe of what she had said at their last interview, but she bit back the obvious retort. Still filled with her unnatural courage, she said in a cold and unreasonable voice, because if you are going to, it's horribly unfair. Whatever Monica's done, she's been punished enough already. You know she's not quite like other people. She's not very clever, I mean. And people have always been rather unfair to her and laughed at her. There isn't an ounce of harm in Monica. Everyone knows that. And if she is expelled, she's going to have a perfectly beastly time at home. She's got a very strict father and a stepmother who isn't any too nice to her in the ordinary way. During this speech, Mother Radcliffe looked at Nanda with a blank amazement. If a cat had begun to talk, she could hardly have seemed more astonished. When Nanda stopped, there was a strained silence during which Mother Radcliffe's face slowly assumed an expression of sternness and distaste. Very interesting, she said at last. I have not often been told my duty, quite so clearly, by a child of your age, invaluable as your advice is, I am afraid I do not see my way to taking it. There are some things which are no doubt permitted in the high schools to which your Protestant friends are accustomed, but they are not permitted at Lippington. Monica Owen has done something which cannot possibly be overlooked. But even this did not deter Nanda. Monica hasn't spoken to a soul for three days, she said passionately. She's been shut up in the retreat house all this time and only allowed into the chapel. She looks half dead with sheer misery. It's too much punishment for anyone. I thought Catholics were supposed to be charitable. Can't some of us go and see her just for five minutes? Three minutes even, she implored. Mother Radcliffe picked up her pen, dipped it in the inkpot, and began a new paragraph in her letter. Without looking up, she said, There is no question of that. Monica Owen was expelled from this house two hours ago.
4: Oh, oh I, I've got a little dog outside oh. the door applauding. Uh,
0: <laughs> Brilliant reading. Brilliant reading, Erica. You
4: know, I'd, I'd like to come straight back at that with something that I would, li- I would like your, your instant reaction to. I found a review of The Hound and the Falcon, which was a, a later book of Antonia's White's of, of letters, published in the 1960s. And I found a review of it by Stevie Smith in The Listener. And I'll just read you the very beginning and very end. Stevie Smith, Catholic, I think I'm right in saying. Yeah, yeah. Miss Antonia White's first book, Frost in May, was a brilliant and disturbing novel about the child Nanda in her fashionable convent school some 50 years ago. The nuns were snobbish and severe. Their treatment of Nanda and of the other... Little middle-class girl who drew animals in her notebooks roused great anger. So well did the author write. And then she goes on. I began to wonder all the same if Nanda was not a sad problem, however ill-handled, for the nuns at her school. (laughs) And all the more I think she was when she writes of them now that perhaps nuns are harsher than monks because they have a double sacrifice to make, husbands and children, and that is why they feel embittered. Perhaps, really, letters should not be published, especially letters from people about religion and themselves. They are too hungry a trap for romantic egoism. It is curious that in both cases, the other side of the correspondence was lost. One would like to have seen it. (laughs) Stevie Smith at her kindest there.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That word curious is doing a lot of work there, isn't it?
0: (laughs) I mean, one of the things, I I don't really feel this is a spoilers kind of book, but um, one of the things that is intriguing about it is how closely it's based on Antonia White's own life, right? I mean, this is pretty much exactly what happened to her. Um, And as you've said, Laura, she went on to... To pretty much unpack what happened to her in the next in the next three books, ending up with the um, the really uh, extraordinary uh, last book in that sequence which is is about her time uh, spent in, a, in an asylum.
3: they didn't expect you to recover quite so quickly as you did they didn't expect me for to recover at all they to have to tell my parents that I was incurable I might get a bit better when I was 50. which wasn't much comfort to mm. them mm. Actually, I recovered much to their surprise. But I had to, f- as soon as I began to be a bit conscious, you know, and sort of hold myself together, it was a terrific effort to hold oneself together for a whole day. You could get a bit of it straight, perhaps a meal, or going to the washroom or something, but you couldn't connect up. But by a terrific effort of will, I did eventually manage to piece days together. And of course, for a lot, I had no idea. I remember one time uh, a nurse opening the door of my cell and I th- suddenly seemed to have come to for a moment and I said, where am I? And she said, you're in the hospital. And I said, what kind of a hospital? And she said, the hospital for girls who ask too many questions and slammed the door.
4: Laura, that made my blood run cold again because you're hearing the the cycle of behaviour that she's been subjected to with the nuns in Bethlehem Hospital.
1: Yes. She describes um, her... I I don't know a lot about mental health, so if I use inappropriate terms, please forgive me, but her descent into what should we call mania is, is described in... Some of the language is very reminiscent of the way she describes, you know, the retreat in Frost in May and her thoughts about hell, and, of course, it's all linked up massively. And, of course, it's also... I mean, once you've read all four, there are two villains. One is the Catholic Church, and the other is the father, who converted at the age of 35 and took his wife, who I rather liked, actually, um, the sort of frivolous, supposedly wife, took his wife and the seven-year-old, what was her name then, Irene Botting, uh, Antonia White's real name, took them into the Catholic Church. And what is incredible, though, this life she had, which on paper is like the worst life ever. She was married three times. The first two husbands, the first two marriages were unconsummated. The first time she had sex, she had an abortion. She got pregnant and had an abortion. She had very problematic relationships with her two daughters, um, et cetera, et cetera, and, of course, these bouts of mania. And yet in these books, Frost and May being... The best of them, but again, the other three are superb as well. There's a there's a there's a non-judgmentalism about the whole thing. She gets inside her father's head in a way that I, it, it's an incredible imaginative act of empathy. She actually describes at the beginning of the second book, *The Lost Traveler*. She actually describes it must be an imagined episode how her father actually came to convert, um, and it comes from some sort of erotic. There's there's they're, they're terribly eroticized these books. Um, it's an erotic impulse almost sublimated and of course today we would say that their relationship was uh, heavily eroticized. she was the only child and they were very very close and um, when she went into Freudian (laughs) analysis she was in Freudian analysis I thought you know that's a mistake because there's almost too much material
4: (laughs) (laughs) But, but Laura she says it in that interview, she does it in that very English way where she go where she goes well yes i was in the freudian analysis i mean you know with my father classic
0: Oedipal. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. she's brilliant
2: i think also in that interview uh it's very striking that she says that her parents were told that she might recover when she was 50 and i think that what she's saying is when she went through the menopause
0: menopause yeah yeah
2: Therefore, this was the, the, the coded reference is to a sexual hysteria because, of course, it's sex that makes women crazy. We, we all know that and agree. <laughs> and that comes to one of the things I had wanted to, to say that's really striking in, in this book is that clearly eroticized relationship with the very creepy father
0: um and there's that, that that terrible scene in the biography where he threatens her with um with hitting her with a ruler and she has to he's going to take her knickers down she writes about her illness as the beast but she also writes about religion as the thing that she she, she she's harder on herself than anyone else i mean and it, it, you know she's she's uh, uh, i think it would be fair to say that she is at times in life because of her illness because of what we would probably clearly see as bipolar now She's a difficult person to like. Dylan Thomas said he thought of her as a wild animal tamed in a suburban zoo, dreaming of freedom. And then one day, waking, obsessed by those dreams, she escaped into liberty, a liberty that for her, necessarily because of a long, tame imprisonment, was far more terrifying than the safety behind the suburban zoo Mm. bars. And you do get this sense that she's continually about to erupt. Laura, you've got a piece, haven't you, from... um the fourth novel which is called beyond the glass
4: yeah and, and this novel is the novel about her breakdown that we that we heard her talking about in that interview extract
1: well it goes but she so she has I mean the second the third novel um the sugar house is about her marriage to this see her father poor man was also a terrible snob he so wants her to marry this boy Um, Archie, as he's called in the book, because he's born Catholic and he's also upper class. And the relationship between them, this sexless love, no doubt about it, between them is so beautifully done. It's it's phenomenal. I can't think of another relationship like it depicted in in literature. Anyway, she comes out of that, the non-consummated marriage, comes out of that trauma and then falls madly in love, which did in fact happen in real life with this very good-looking young um, soldier. And But throughout Beyond the Glass, you, you know, the, the glass, the idea that she's this mirror image of herself and she can't connect the two ever is, is the constant motif. And throughout the book, you feel her fragmenting. Again, there's this sense of foreboding that you can feel something bad is going to happen. It's done brilliantly and then i was just going to read a tiny little bit actually um when she starts she talks about it in that interview she started to piece things together again but her memory of this stuff which in the biography is set against the actual medical notes and her memory of it in this book is so accurate she must have been so the, the idea that you're submerged in mania and yet you you know what's happening is very touching and terrible isn't it So this is just a tiny little bit. They moved her to a new room because she was starting to get better. But she doesn't recognise her own surname because it's her married name. Hang on. So you've got yourself up and dressed, have you? said the nurse. Actually brushing your hair too. Good. I'm sorry I used the brush, Clara muttered. You see, I haven't one of my own. They're yours, all right. Can't you read? Some instinct warned Clara to make no comment. She said humbly, what a lovely room, may I really stay in it? As long as you behave yourself, yes. Now, do you think you can keep it tidy? Oh yes, said Clara eagerly. "Hmm. When I come back, let me see if you know how to make a bed. The nurse went out. At first, the task seemed impossible. The sheets and blankets tangled themselves into a shapeless mess. But she persevered with desperate concentration. Suddenly she remembered how to make a bed. She smoothed and tucked and folded, slowly but competently. Somewhere, a long time ago, she'd done this every morning for critical eyes. She remembered a long row of white curtain cubicles and children in blue uniforms and black aprons making beds. The door clicked open with a sound so much like that of a nun's wooden signal that she turned round and, without thinking, said, are my corners all right today, Mother? (laughs) And from that point, she starts to put herself back together. I mean, some of the early passages where she she thought she was a horse. A salmon. A salmon, a bell. It's absolutely extraordinary.
4: When I finished reading Frost in May, I didn't really know anything about Antonia White and I finished it and I thought, well, that was very good, very, uh, but quite polite, you know, quite it's it's it's. And then after I read Jane Dunn's, as you say, superb biography, I realised that the politeness is only on the surface, of course, and that control is really what it is. I mean, we don't need to know the details of Antonia White's life on one level because it's there in the novel and it's what she wanted to tell us. But to take these events, nervous breakdown, incarceration, and then tell you the story she wants to tell you as um, carefully as she can, seemed to me far more of a, 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 a... piece of artistic bravery than i had first given it credit for
2: there's a uh quote from carmen Khalil, who of course was the publisher of virago and this was as we've said it was the first title of the virago list when it appeared and carmen Khalil asked her to Write an introduction to this new edition of Frost in May. And Carmen Khalil said, I sat opposite her and I watched pain so great overcome her, it twisted her body. I was dumbstruck. She was a living ball of pain. And so Khalil, she wrote the introduction instead because Antonia White clearly was not able to to do it.
4: This is a really important novel twice over yes it makes an imp- an impact in the early no- 1930s when it's published but actually it's so important to the success of the virago project sure that that this book becomes a bestseller and it's a tribute to carmen and the other people who worked at virago that they recognize the potential for this particular book that it has the perennial appeal of first literary quality but also you know, you'll always go quite far with a book that could also be considered a misery memoir, or contains. No, I'm, 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 I'm not yeah. really joke, joking. You know, or contains elements of Jane Eyre, or, or the '70s comic that was the, was the most popular comic that ever ran in the comic Misty which was called Slaves of War Orphan Farm which I've which I've talked about (laughs) on this podcast before where basically you take a group of girls and you incarcerate them and you treat them terribly will always find an audience.
2: But also uh, I, I get the point about incarcerated girls but a Bildungsroman will always find an audience. It's a story about Growing up, as I said before, we can all, whatever our backgrounds, it seems to me, can't speak for everyone, of course, but you can put yourself, particularly as any kind of young woman, into this situation and see yourself in it. And I mentioned a connection when we were emailing back and forth to Margaret Atwood's cat's eye. And it's an extraordinary depiction of the febrile nature of female friendships. And that, it seems to me, you know, has not changed from when this book was published uh, until now.
0: Uh, um, I think that's the end. I think I hear the bell calling us to evening prayer. (laughs) Um, So thank you, Laura and Erica, for guiding us through this exquisite portal. To the strange and difficult world of Antonia White. Uh, to Nikki Birch for conducting us this quartet across the uncomfortable distances of time and space <laughs> and to Unbound for keeping the altar candles burning.
4: You can download all 110 episodes. That's right, 110. <laughs> Probably Actually, adds up about 120 hours of this now. <laughs> longer than Das Boot plus follow links clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website backlisted and you can get in touch with us on facebook or via twitter
0: Uh, you can also show your love directly now by supporting our patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted Uh, we started it so listeners can help us keep backlisted afloat in uncertain times we love doing it want to keep the quality high uh, and we don't want me having to talk about trousers uh, week in and <laughs> week out. All patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early, and for the price of two indifferent glasses of white wine, lot listeners get two extra listeds a month. The Unplugged Zone, where Andy, Nicky and I talk, sing, cavort, and generally opine about music, film, art, television, books. This is just to give you a heads up
4: that uh, the next episode of Backlisted will be on margaret kennedy's novel the constant nymph and then following that two weeks after that an episode that we've been trailing for the last five years
0: <laughs> so true
4: At where we finally found a way of talking about the inheritors by william golding a book that john and i talked about the very very first time we ever discussed doing Batlisted as one of the th- three books we wanted to do so so uh, we have three new recklessly generous Master Storytellers supporters to thank first. They get it all and our undying gratitude. So thank you, Mary McGarry. Thank you, Anna Magdalena Cavallin. Thank you, Mark
0: Aykroyd. And also some on-air thanks to our second batch of lot listeners. Uh, they like what we do enough to put their money where their ears go. Um, starting at the top, Ben Felony's diamond Gary Hocking, Jude Henderson, Anna Mack, Kenny Peeper, Natalie Morse, Gillian Thompson, Mike Bradburn, Lee, Ryan Lloyd, Catherine Steele, Sean, Claire Malcolm. Hi, Claire. Love you, Claire. <laughs> Lovely Adele Jurass. Hi, Adele. Ian Mond. Mondy boy. Ru- <laughs> Richard Griffiths. Karen Langley. Felicity Evans. Neil Ford. Uh, Elizabeth Eva Leach, Daniel Hillman,
4: Elizabeth Basil, Tony Vander Moore, Mary Mulligan, Alan McIntyre, Matt Callow, Shanine McGorian, Laura Varnum. Yay, a guest supported us. Thanks, Laura. Sarah Woodward, Elaine, Cosmo Bones, Wilson, Wilson McLaughlin, McLaughlin, Fnord, Sean, Sean French. Hi, Sean. god I Sean French. Daniel Copley. Thanks,
0: everybody. Thanks so much for your support. We really appreciate it. Uh, brilliant. Um, and that's us for now. We're, thank you for listening. We're back in a fortnight.
4: Bye. Bye.
0: <laughs> if you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.